0: Hey, Corey. I just got back from another hiking and camping trip out in the woods with my kids. As we were out there hiking and looking for a place to set up camp, I found myself thinking, this reminds me of tax credits.
1: All right. Extended metaphor time. So uh, explain.
0: Well, the first time we went on one of these trips, everything seemed mysterious. The kids were nervous. There was a lot we didn't know and didn't understand. But as we spent more time out in the woods and camped more often, we got more comfortable. We learned what we're doing, and it's not really intimidating or mysterious anymore. It's the same thing with tax credits. Confusing at first maybe a little scary, but once you understand them better, you can really appreciate what they can accomplish and
1: why they matter. All right. And if I might extend the metaphor just a little bit further, all it takes is a good guide.
0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac MacModdy Family Podcast. I'm Steve
1: puget And I'm Corey Aber. And today, we're going to head back into the mysterious world of tax credits, this time to cover some recent developments and opportunities, not just for housing, but for community development generally. We're joined once more by Michael Novogratic, this time in his official tax credit wilderness guide vest and uniform. Uh, Michael is head of and namesake for one of the leading tax credit accounting and consulting firms, Novogratic and he's the host of his own podcast, Tax Credit Tuesday. So Mike, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you very much for having me back.
1: All right, yeah, it's, it's really great to have you back because the last time you we were on, on the show back in 2019, I think was one of the best uh, sort of introductions in histories uh, on the low-income housing tax credit that I've ever heard. Um, so I'm excited to continue the story here. Uh, but being focused on housing so much, right, just personally, I naturally think primarily about the housing aspects of tax credits But that's just part of the story, just as housing is really just one part of a broader community development story. So let's get into that more complete story today. So, Mike, how would you characterize some of the rest of the tax credits and and fit it into that broader story?
2: Yes, uh, thank you for that uh, great introductory question about community development tax credits, because the log for tax credit really is part of a broader group uh, of community development tax credits. You know, those tax credits designed to create public-private partnerships that are further community development and with an emphasis in distressed areas. Uh, as we discussed in the prior uh, podcast, the long income tax credit is the, the centerpiece, if you will, of community development tax credits and of affordable housing policy in the United States. And as I mentioned before, that's an allocated credit, a 9% credit, as well as a private activity bond financed or 4% credit. Which we can talk about more the details of the two types of long-term tax credits uh, in a bit, but the other community development tax credits that I uh, wanted to be emphasizing here is the historic tax credit, and it actually is, is the predecessor to the long-term housing tax credit. And the historic tax credit is the first credit uh, I ever worked on in my tax career, and that is a twenty percent credit to you know help support the financing. The equity financing of their renovation and rehabilitation of historic buildings. So the historic tax credit is foundational in many community development efforts to save historic properties. Uh, a third rough category of you know, the tax credits is the new markets tax credit. And that's in some ways a companion to the housing credit, to the long income housing tax credit. The long income housing tax credit is designed, as you know, for residential rental housing and the new market tax credit, while it can be used for housing, can also be used, is really targeted on business activities in low-income communities beyond residential rental housing. And I'd say, you know, those are the three centerpieces of uh, types of uh, community development tax credits. But if you get a little bit more expansive in the develop, in the definition of community development tax credits, you can also look to renewable energy tax credits. They're both investment and production tax credits designed to incentivize the Procuring of renewable energy as well as energy efficiency.
1: All right, so that that's a great uh, sort of way to structure our conversation today. Maybe we can we can start then just with a little bit more detail on on private activity bonds and and how that fits into housing before we get into some of the others.
2: Yeah, they. I mentioned that long income housing tax credit as a uh, really a two-prong credit. There's both an allocated credit. And the low-income tax credit has an allocated credit where you go and apply to the credit allocating agency uh, and enter into a competition to get that credit. The other is the private-activity bond finance 4% credit. And there, there's a competition, but the competition isn't for low-income housing tax credits. It's a competition for private-activity bonds. And private-activity bonds are tax-exempt bonds that are issued by a government agency, but there's a private-activity component of what the activity is that those productivity bonds, those tax and bonds are supporting. And residential rental housing is an example of a private activity because the property itself will be owned by private and not government entities. Uh, but productivity bonds can also be used for home ownership. They can be used for water and sewage facilities and, and other types of private activities that have a strong impact on the government and a strong benefit to the government by and that's why these productivity bonds incentivize those activities. But if you go and compete and win an award of productivity bonds, then when you finance more than half your property costs with those productivity bonds, then you're eligible for tax credits at a lower rate. It's a 4% tax credit. But that, that's the way in which productivity bonds fit into the long term tax credit, affordable rental housing story.
1: Mike, as we continue on uh, looking at the, the lay of the land with these uh, different community development tax credits, I think uh, maybe let's turn to the first one that you ever worked on, historic tax credits.
2: Right. let me uh, back up a second before I spend time on the historic tax credit and just more broadly within the community development tax credit realm sort of discuss, you know, why, you know, what some of the unique aspects of this bucket, if you will, of tax credits are. And that is that they are foundationally public-private partnerships. There are, and I say public-private partnerships in the sense that private parties are generating a public benefit, and these private parties are raising equity from those tax credits. So the long-mousing tax credit, the new markets tax credit, the historic tax credit, and some other tax credits that are being discussed, as well as energy tax credits, of course, uh, you know, they're all about getting private equity invested at the beginning stage, the high-risk phase, the development phase. Of these activities. And they're sort of foundational to making these projects, these investments financially feasible. And the concept is that the private parties take all the development, lease up risk, and operating risk. And then these tax credits are claimed and retained over time to the extent that the actual project performs the public purpose it's being incentivized to perform. So they really are success based public private partnerships. And I think that's important as you're thinking about long-term tax credit, new market tax credits, and historic tax credits. But kind of stepping back to the now talking about historic tax credits, the historic tax credit, it's 20% of your qualified rehabilitation costs of historic buildings. And it, those credits, you know, investors will come in, they'll invest equity uh, in a partnership, and then that equity from those historic tax credits helps close the financing gap. So you can renovate an historic property uh, and keep and preserve uh, the character of that neighborhood or that building for future generations.
0: That's great. And, uh, and like you said, that one goes back the furthest. And I think that uh, it could be housing, could not be housing, much like the new market tax credit. Is, is that accurate? That is
2: correct. All of these tax credits, obviously, the long-term tax credit is all about housing. But the new market tax credit and historic tax credit and energy tax credits can all be used. In combination with housing. And we've worked on a number of properties and a number of investments where they do end up layering in more than one of these subsidies.
1: So let's turn to the new markets credits then, and then uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about how they fit together.
2: Great. Yeah, we, I, m- I mentioned the historic tax credit. It was the first tax credit, if you will, that I ever worked on. And I always think of it as the uh, initial community development tax credit, but I'm sure other historians can correct me. Uh, But the historic tax credit, and then you had the low-income housing tax credit. And then the new market tax credit was created in 2000, almost as an adjunct or a sibling of low-income housing tax credits. Low-income housing tax credits are foundationally residential rental housing. New market tax credit is designed to be to incentivize investment in businesses and long-term communities that aren't residential rental housing. Uh, So it generally is not housing. That said, uh, you can use new market tax credits to finance businesses that are not sort of primarily residential rental. So you can use them for mixed use housing, uh, for example. And in fact, over 16,000 affordable units have been financed in part with new market tax credits. And the new market tax credit is all about you know, you go to the CD5 fund, you get an award of the right to issue, you know, equity, and then you go out and raise equity based upon these new market tax credits, then you can use that equity to make below market loans and equity investments in businesses that are operating in distressed communities, in low income communities to be exact.
0: That's great. And so the and like you say, so so one outcome is is the sixteen thousand housing units you referenced, but then There's because this is broader than that. There's other kind of benefits that flow to the community, and people need to consider uh, how are they going to benefit the community and things like that. How 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 does that how does that work? Is it jobs created? Other things?
2: Yeah, that is a great question. We just uh, recorded a podcast on community impact and community outcomes, Uh, and there really is a focus on outcomes. There's a competition that you engage in with other community development entities if you're wanting to go and access this resource so that you can uh, then uh, invest in uh, distressed communities. And there is a great focus on outcomes. And the outcomes can be jobs. It can be wealth building. Um, There's a variety of possible outcomes. And the CDFI fund, when they're going through and evaluating uh, applications, they view all those various outcomes. And just to give you a sense of the diversity of the investments, there have been over 1,500 manufacturing industrial businesses in distressed communities that have received and benefited from uh, new market tax credits, subsidized financing, and over 2,500 qualified healthcare facilities, schools, daycare centers, apprenticeship (laughs) programs, treatment facilities, and others, uh, and over 140 small business incubators. So there has been a lot of diverse activity. And that's one of the beauties of the new market cash credit is it is rather diverse in terms of the number of businesses it can support.
1: So, and that, I, I suppose, is where you really start to see that that uh, broader community development story. Because when we talk about housing a lot, and, and you know, we've had a couple of guests on the show talking about areas of opportunity and bringing opportunity to areas that may not be uh, formally defined as areas of opportunity today. So it sounds like New markets tax credits are are part of that equation, and especially maybe if done in the same markets as low income housing tax credits. Is that a fair assessment?
2: It is, and I'd also note on the historic tax credit, roughly half of the historic tax credit developments that have moved forward, you know, since the inception of the incentive are in low income communities. So historic tax credits, while there isn't a specific targeted focus on low income communities in the sense of you know the way in which the incentive itself is statutorily constructed, it is in fact, very critical to renovation uh, and economic revitalization of distressed communities.
1: so before we before we leave this you know sort of summary level uh, discussion of the different types of credits, you mentioned renewable energy tax credits. So let's talk about that for a minute.
2: Yes, the renewable energy tax credits, where we tend to see that in a community revitalization area. Is in the energy efficiency side and the renewable energy generation side. So, in the renewable energy generation side, there is a twenty-six percent tax credit for solar panels. So, you can envision, you know, all the various uh, incentives that I've already discussed having a you know solar component uh, to it to generate uh, renewable energy. So that that we see, you know, quite a bit. Then there's also a tax credit that Really ties into energy efficiency for housing, and there's a 45 cap L for the code heads who are listening in. I'm sure that's a broad audience, <laughs> but it is, it is in uh, colloquially referred to as the 45 cap L credit as well. Uh, the 45 cap L credit is two thousand dollars a unit for energy for building uh, energy efficient units for housing, and those are the two areas we see it the most in the housing context. And there are other you know, energy, uh, tax credit incentives, but those are the two of most note for this subject.
0: That is, uh, it's, it's really remarkable to see how these you know, public-private partnerships kind of, as, as you talked about before, kind of impact so many different kinds of proposals, right? Which you, and, and then to think, you know, adding energy as well is, you know, it's, it's, it's really broad-based in terms of what the, the tax credits impact in terms of investments in communities, how about uh, maybe we could talk about well, over time, you know, is it this, this is generally growing demand or uh, how, how, how have things kind of progressed as uh, through different periods of time? And certainly growth is the longer term story.
2: Right. I definitely think it's been uh, growth. There's definitely been growth and increasing demand. So all of these incentives you know, every year that, you know, more work with them. You know what used to be complex isn't complex when you do it a lot. As you uh-huh. mentioned, if you know going on a hike the first time, you need a map. <laughs> yeah. By the tenth time you're doing it, uh, you can go on the hike without a map. Uh, <laughs> so that so there's definitely the notion that you know with repetition comes simplicity, and more are available. More you know realize this ins- these incentives are out there and compete for them, and that's all good because one of the foundations and the benefits of public private partnerships. Is the competition that goes on, and the competition is what drives greater efficiency. Uh, and we're seeing that in, uh, you know, in equity pricing. We're seeing that in community outcomes uh, as these tax credits are used. Now, obviously, those are overall trends. Depending upon you know the economic cycle and other factors, it's not a, a constant trend of you know of sort of greater equity pricing and greater demand and the rest. But that is. The, the long-term trend, taking into account economic cycles,
1: I think perhaps the area where we've seen the most growth or most dramatic growth recently, though, has been in uh, private activity bonds and four percent credits. Is that right?
2: That is, and that is something that it, you know was really, uh, I would say, initially shocking in an extremely good way back in 2016, because we'd had a number of years where private activity bonds, the extent they were being used for. Residential rental housing was in the maybe five billion or so a year uh, annual uses uh, across the country, uh, and that basically means there were five billion dollars plus or minus of private equity bonds that were being issued to finance residential rental housing, and there was a dip, uh, you know, you know a number of years back. And you you know when the dip w- was you know during the Great Recession <laughs> there was a dip in lots of economic activity productivity bonds sort of being included but absent that it was clicking along at this you know five to six billion dollar uh, annual amount but in 2016 you know a number of events you know came to be that led there to be a dramatic spike in the usage and it went from you know five to six billion to 14 billion I mean more than double and then since then the annual sort of usage is of private equity bonds for residential rental housing has been in that $14 to $15 billion range, which has been really great to see. At first, we didn't know if it was going to be sustainable, but it has definitely been sustainable, which means there's a lot more resources going into financing affordable rental housing across the country.
1: So as you were seeing this happen at, at the time, what was your reaction to this you know, really big growth?
2: I was pleased. <laughs> so I was very pleased to see the growth. We have been spending, you know, many years trying to, you know, use that resource because it is a unique use for private activity bonds. And many will argue that private activity bonds, since they, they can be used for a variety of purposes, but the uh, use of residential rental housing is unique in that it does bring along these tax credits. So it's basically the federal government saying if you use these private activity bonds for various other purposes. The benefit you receive is the tax exemption, which is valuable. But if you use them for long-term tax credits, you know, your state, you know, you know your possession, you get not only the tax uh, exempt benefit, but you also get these tax credits that go with it like a match. Uh, and since they have this match aspect to them, you know, many believe that's the most efficient use for states, to use them first for residential rental housing. And, but we were trying to find ways to say, okay, you have the tax exempt and you have the tax credits. How is it that we can make this work, to where more of these bonds can be used for residential rental housing? More, por- more importantly, rent restricted, uh, low income uh, tenant qualified housing. Uh, and 2016 was sort of the culmination of many trends that had been happening, and it was you know rising tax credit equity pricing. So tax credit equity pricing had slowly been rising, and interest rates sort of on average had been falling, and as equity prices were rising. It meant you could raise more equity from the tax credits. As interest rates were falling, it means existing developments could support more sort of hard debt financing. And you also had median incomes rising across the country. And rise of median incomes meant that rents were rising, which means, uh, you know, affordable properties could afford slightly more debt. And then there was also other soft financing. But I'd say that rising equity pricing, falling interest rates, rising median incomes, those three really led to you know, a more developments being financially feasible. And it as markets can react pretty quickly, I think the confluence of all of those happened in 2016 to where suddenly considerably more developments were financially feasible. And as a consequence, you saw this rush in 2016. And at first, we didn't know if that was going to be sustainable. And for a couple of years, we were, you know, we weren't sure it was going to be sustainable, but it did turn out to be, or has turned out so far, to be sustainable at that level.
1: No, I mean, that, that's really fascinating. And certainly just when you look at the numbers, it looks like, oh, there's this big surprise. But, but hearing that, that it did take a few years of putting some things together and, and, and thinking through it makes a lot of sense. Were there some insights in those few years that were really key to more people being able to make use of it, to, you know, to go along with the, those economic points that you made?
2: You know, I don't, I don't think it was a question of understanding or education and maybe that's just me because we spent a lot of time trying to educate <laughs> the industry. And I feel like my job had, I hadn't held my job up. I'd done my job very well if, if it was an education issue. <laughs> I think it really was economic factors. Because at the end of the day, you know, every development needs to be financially feasible to move forward. And when you're looking at a real estate development, you have a variety of sources. And obviously you have a variety of uses and you're constantly trying to say, can I get enough sources to fund the uses? And for many years, you know, that, that equation was challenging and it could be done, but that's when we were at that five to $6 billion, you know, range with the exception of the great recession. Uh, and then, you know, once equity pricing had risen enough, interest rates fallen enough, median income's risen enough in enough areas, because this is all, you know, I'm giving you kind of national sort of statistics, but all real estate is local. So you had to look at if given areas, having all these features kind of come together and there were just more and more areas across the country where these uh, features or these trends were coming together, and when they did come together then suddenly these developments were financially feasible because of those external factors if you will,
0: as opposed to an education that's that's uh certainly intuitive and it's, it's, it's hard to forecast anything but uh, but when I Falls together like that. That's good. And as you say, you, you want those uh, private activity bonds to be used because it's just, it's so efficient. Does it does it go together with, with the the other kind of non housing uses? Have those grown as well?
2: And yeah, it's a uh, great question about the other uses. <clears throat> and I would say with when you think of the new market tax credit, it is capped. It is now at five billion dollars a year of allocation issuance authority. And it is very competitive every round. So I would say new market tax credits are getting more and more in demand, but there aren't more of them. Uh, And the same thing, you know, the 9% credit, the long-term tax credit, that 9% credit is a set amount. Uh, So at that amount, you know, the fact that there's more demand doesn't lead to there being more. Uh, However, productivity bonds, there is a cap. There's a cap. Every state can issue a certain amount of productivity bonds. But there, those amounts for many years, states had lots of carryover, and there wasn't really a limit. The result of this, you know, roughly you know fourteen to fifteen billion dollars a year of productivity bonds being issued, you know, every year since twenty sixteen, is now more states are running out of productivity bond cap, uh, and more states are uh, finding they need to. Provide a greater share of those productivity bond cap to residential rental housing. Um, so I would say now there's roughly 16 or 17 states where the productivity bond cap is the limiting force. The amount of productivity bonds allocated to mm-hmm. residential rental housing is the limitation. Because the, and then there's obviously you know 30 some states that aren't there yet. But I think every day I hear of a new state. It seems that is now uh, facing those limitations. And I would say on the historic tax credit side. The historic tax credit is, isn't capped. So the historic tax credit has definitely been sort of more popular uh, over time. But the, but the historic tax credit you know, did take a hit in the, uh, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017 in that the credit used to be a 20% credit when you place the building in service. But instead, as part of that uh, tax act, they extended it to where you claim it every year over five years. And that, you know, adversely affected the pricing as you can imagine. If you claim the credit when you place the building in service versus the claim over five years, it's not quite as valuable. It's still very much in demand. Demand is rising, but that did have a, a bit of a hiccup in the sense that suddenly, you know, many developments that were planning on it at a certain value had to make slight adjustments based upon a slight reduction in the value of the historic tax credit versus what it was before.
1: So, Mike, when when you talk about the States, some states running out of bond cap for private activity bonds. Does that lead to some concerns that uh, just about the distribution of those bonds? Like, do do some states worry, or or uh, people watching this worry that maybe the, those hospitals or water facilities or other things that's used for don't get funding, but housing does, or is it a little bit of a different equation there?
2: Yeah, I would, I would say broadly as. More and more as there's more and more demand for productivity bonds, residence rental housing, you know, the first step various allocated agencies have to do is enter into a competition. And they have to say for the how, for the bonds that we have, you know, back when we had, you know, plenty of productivity bonds for all purposes, it was essentially first come, first serve. Well I wouldn't say first come, first serve. I would say come and you will be served. <laughs> uh, you know, so there wasn't an issue of can I get the productivity bond cap? And back in the day, productivity bond, you know, long term tax credits were considered automatic in this or non-competition, non-competitive, because there was a notion that if you get the project to be financially feasible, you could get the bonds. And as I mentioned, that's not the case now. And The good news with respect to that is that states now can be prioritizing what they want, what type of residential housing they want with their private activity bonds. And California, for instance, recently, uh, not recently, it's a few years ago, but they enacted a $500 million tax credit, state tax credit for low-income housing to pair with private activity bonds. So the combination of the tax credits themselves, the federal tax credits with the, the state tax credits, you could actually finance a new construction. And initially, when we saw this uptick in uh, productivity bonds, there was a lot of acquisition rehab where you were uh, taking existing properties that, and adding them to the affordable housing stock and renovating them uh, and the like, or preserving uh, existing properties. And then over time, states have been able to focus to the extent that that's one of their goals on new construction to basically add to the housing supply more generally, and obviously had adding affordable housing units. So I think there's been this sort of evolution uh, in that sense, in terms of what types of properties, uh, residential rental properties, they're subsidizing. Uh, I think the broader question about how to go about you know, making decisions within your state is, yes, to the extent that you know, a state has all these various demands, the state has to then prioritize uh, those various demands. And as you prioritize one demand, uh, then you're obviously deprioritizing another. And it does lead to those challenges.
1: One other development uh, that's recent with the 4% credits is that 4% now really means 4%. So two aspects of that that I think are interesting. One is a uh, wait really it wasn't always 4% so i'm sure some some people might be wondering that and how and how that plays out and then two what does that 4% uh, true 4% mean to uh, the use and impact of those credits now especially when running up against bond cap so maybe we can start with with the first one a little bit of history on on that
2: yes the 4% credit uh, was 4% when it was first enacted uh, in the when the Long tax credit was enacted back in 1986, for the first year, the 9% credit was 9% and the 4% credit was 4%. But after that, the credit was calculated and adjusted on a monthly basis based upon a present value calculation. And technically, the 9% credit is the 70% present value credit. And technically, the 4% credit is the 30% present value credit. And in the early years of the long and tax credit program, the 9% credit was actually higher because interest rates were higher, so the present value, so the credit had to be higher to get to the present value calculation. But then the 9% credit over time fell below 9%, uh, and that's what led to the 9% floor being put in place a number of years ago, so that at a minimum, it was not going to be 9%. Uh, the 4% credit after that first year was never 4% again. Uh, it was always less than 4% because even that the way the discounting worked, it never got up to 4%. And then in, in the more recent years, it was down to 3%, uh, just over 3%. Uh, so it was maybe 3.8 or 3.08 or the like. So it was really low. Um, and that was definitely one of the reasons why, you know, initially, you know, back before 2016, it was difficult to get uh, developments to be financially feasible, uh, they ended up having, you know, as I mentioned, a variety of reasons why more developments became uh, financially feasible. Um, but it's still, a, you know, it's always been a challenge to do new construction with priority bonds as opposed to acquisition rehab. Well, we've been trying in the broader community for years to get there to be a 4% floor uh, to address the fact that this, in, that this rate was falling so much. And then at the end of last year, uh, Congress did enact a 4% floor. So now the 4% credit really is the 4% credit. And it does mean that the amount of equity you can generate from tax credits for productivity bond finance residence rental housing is now, you know, over 30% higher than it otherwise would be. And that's one of the reasons why I think into the future, I mentioned roughly 17 states, you know, you know, as of the time I last checked a month or so ago, we were running up against limitations of productivity bonds. It's only going to get worse because that raising that 4% floor to, a, or, or creating a 4% floor, uh, means that more developments that were on the books using a three point plus percent rate will now be financially feasible. And they'll be reaching out to their uh, allocating agencies to try to access private activity bonds.
0: And, and I think that's, that's, that's yeah, it's great to get that increase. And, and like you said, you from about 3% to a 4% is, is, is really meaningful. Um, and, and people do take notice.
1: It's, uh, it's timely, I would say, too, in that uh, so many costs for developers
0: are going up a lot right now, and so so that kind of thing is 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 definitely needed. Um, do you, Do you think um, uh, you know just current situation? Like um, you said, do you, are there other driving factors that are affecting
2: development? I definitely think everything that I hear about with the clients are the rising construction costs. You know, as you note. Uh, you know, construction costs have, have really spiked and, you know, there's lots of numbers out there, you know, lumber prices are up over 300% in the last 12 months. And you can easily imagine you're doing your development and you've done your financing structure, you've got your sources, your uses and all the rest. And then suddenly your lumber costs go up 300%, over 300%. And then you say, well, maybe I'll go to iron or something. And it's like, well, iron costs are up over 100%. So it's not as if uh, there's, you know, there's, a, there's another source of materials that are going to allow you to offset those costs. Um, unfortunately, I think many developments you know, can't use the 4% uh, floor to help absorb those costs because of the timing rules and effective dates and, and all the rest. And there's a whole other podcast on that topic but I would say what uh, many uh, developers and project financiers are doing is they're going to the state agencies and saying, look, you know, I initially had an allocation of this amount. Uh, so I need to get a, a higher allocation amount. So if it's, if it's, if you're originally being financed with 9% low income cash credits, you need to go and say, I need a supplemental allocation to cover these higher costs. And if you originally financed with productivity bonds, you know, I mentioned that, you know, you get the, you know, the 4% credit if you finance your property with productivity bonds, where you have to finance, you know, essentially you have to finance more than half of your project costs with productivity bonds. And because they're in demand, states are limiting how much they give to any one developer because they say, if I give, you know, one developer, or let them finance 60% of their costs, then I can't finance as many developers and as many projects. So maybe I want to only give you enough to finance 52% of your costs or 55. while well, those... Uh, projects now with higher lumber costs have to go back and get a supplemental bond allocation in order to be able to be financially feasible and have tax credits on the entire project.
1: So does that that affect, you know, in those states where, they're, where they've reached their cap, what gets done then? Is there just a delay till next year or is there some way that the, the state can borrow from next year's cap to solve this year's problem?
2: Yeah, it is a question of uh, working with the developers and trying to uh, for A state has to either get more allocation, maybe they have some developer's return. It's all about the timing as to when the developers need the bond cap increase uh, and what the state has. So there are a variety of mechanisms that a state agency can do in order to free up bond cap for those developments that need it. Uh, and then for those that don't need it this year, give them some of next year's. So I'd say there's a variety of steps sort of in place that different state uh allocating agencies can use. But the critical part is that there's this engaged discussion to help uh, address that. And the same thing's true on the 9% side. There's the bond cap on the bond finance projects. On the 9% credit side, it's to what extent do the states have credits this year, or do they want to forward allocate, or do they want to use another mechanism to give an individual developer an additional amount of credits? Yeah,
0: that is that is. You know, the, I think um, as we said in the, in the outset we need a guide to get through these things and, and you certainly are like uh, getting us through and, and seeing how the the, the public private, private partnership kind of has worked for a long time and it's created a lot of innovation and it even kind of is flexible in, in, in these circumstances that happen immediately that obviously nobody can predict you know 300 percent increases in costs but but there is an ability to kind of go back and forth with, with some constraints so as, as you look forward in, in this tax credit space, what, what other kind of opportunities do you see?
2: I think that members of Congress, you know, the White House and others look at community development tax credits, a broader universe of community developers, look at the long length tax credit, new market tax credit, historic tax credit, and look at them as success stories. But then they also look at those and say, well, what are we not uh, achieving? What do these tools not allow us to do? that we should be creating additional uh, public-private partnerships, public-private tax credit partnerships to accomplish. And when you look at the long income tax credit, you say it is great at serving, you know, income levels uh, of tenants at 60% of area median income or less. But oftentimes people refer to sort of the missing middle. You know, how do we go about serving tenant populations above 60% up to 100%? And there's a variety of ways of doing it a little bit with the long-term tax credit through the average income test, through you know mixed income housing and the like, but there's a proposal to actually create a middle income housing tax credit. So basically, you'd have a tax credit that could subsidize construction of new uh, affordable units uh, or renovate units and commit them to affordability, but the affordability mix would be 100 up to 100% very median income. As opposed to capping it at sixty percent, so it'd be an extra tool to fill that gap. And then, so that's one is this sort of you know missing middle in terms of the renter population. But others will say, well, this is great. We're 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 subsidizing and incentivizing and creating affordable rental housing. What can we be doing on the home ownership space? And we have a number of distressed communities across America where we have you know buildings that have been abandoned, homes that have been abandoned you know, lots in uh, residential areas where, you know, basically the cost of construction or renovation, acquisition or renovation exceeds what the market value is in that community, what you can sell it for. So these homes stay uh, in their current sort of condition. And the idea is we could revitalize these communities as well as encourage uh, uh, home ownership in these communities by, you know, sort of solid middle class as defined by that area. By creating a tax credit to cover that difference, so there is a tax credit being proposed that would create a tax credit to fill the gap between what it costs to acquire and renovate in one of these distressed communities, and uh, and what you can sell it for, uh, with a limit on thirty-five, with a limit as to how much tax credit you can get as a function of uh, construction costs. So that's another one is you know home ownership in distressed, or I should say, renovation, new construction. Of uh, homeowner occupied properties in distressed communities. So that's another one. And then a third is dealing with, you know, there are a lot of non historic buildings that are more than 50 years old. And, you know, they're non historic, so they're not eligible for the historic tax credit. Uh, And as part of an effort to uh, renovate those buildings, particularly those buildings near public transportation, there's a being proposed a 50% tax credit there. To try to help, uh, you know, renovate those older buildings uh, that are near public transportation centers to help create, you know, more vitality around current or planned public transportation centers. But as part of that, there's also a, a desire to also increase uh, and create a greater uh, rehabilitation tax credit. If you're interested in developing affordable housing, uh, you know, near these spaces and uh, farther away, so there's these other tax credits that are sort of out there that are being proposed, uh, and they're all built upon the success, historically, of public-private tax credit partnerships.
1: All right. Well, we're certainly looking forward to seeing, uh, seeing what develops further in the, uh, in the tax credit space, in the community development space. So, Mike, thanks so much for joining us this time. And as more develops, we'll uh, look forward to hopefully having you back on the show to be our guide once more.
2: Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. And as a Eagle Scout, I'm wondering what my Scoutmaster thinks about how good a guide I was. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.
1: Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast is produced and supported by a team of our Freddie Mac colleagues, including our production manager, Melissa Bosma, editor Stephanie Heston, and audio producer Dalton O'Cola.
0: To listen to more and keep up with the latest episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check our website, mf.freddymac.com research for the full catalog of podcast episodes and original Freddie Mac research.